Today, you don't need to travel to see our beautiful planet. With a few taps of your fingers, we can be awed by polar ice caps, or gaze upon the majesty of a far-flung mountain, or listen to the wind in the desert. The internet is great, but not so long ago, we had to rely on accounts of travelers, including artists and painters. The images that they returned home gave people their first glimpse of what other societies and places look like, and how they may resemble or wildly vary from what was familiar. Add to that the attitudes imposed by one society on another, and you can see how interpretations of other worlds and cultures have always been subject to emotion, politics and fashions and contemporary thought. In this episode, we're going to pick through artworks inspired by travel. How is it possible to capture another world or time in a canvas, sculpture, photograph or sketchbook? What do these works tell us about how the artist views their own culture? And how does it cause us to reflect on our own? I'm Ewan Bremner, and you're listening to Reflections, Art, Life and Love from the National Galleries of Scotland. This is the series where we study the length and breadth of human experience through the eyes of unique and diverse artists. Today, our subject is the artist and travel. There were about 40 airstrikes in the Palmyra area today. It's not clear if they were Russian or Syrian Air Force. But what is clear is that that site is in great danger. It may be that airstrikes are also damaging the site. There's some evidence of that. In 2015 and 2016, Islamic State militants in Syria destroyed ancient ruins and monuments at the UNESCO World Heritage Site of Palmyra. Preserved for epochs, by the arid desert conditions, statues, ancient temples, towers and arches were felled in this deliberate and sustained raising of cultural history. What has lasted 2,000 years can be destroyed in a minute. The vandals of the Islamic State haven't yet released pictures of the moment they blew up Palmyra's triumphal arch. The life of Palmyra stretched far beyond the reach of ancient times, though. Two and a half centuries ago, these majestic columns and friezes were documented in detail by the British antiquarians Robert Wood and James Dawkins when they ventured to the desert city. The drawings they made would have a profound effect upon the architecture of Europe and in turn the modern world. In 1758, the Lanarkshire-born artist Gavin Hamilton was commissioned to create a painting commemorating Dawkins' achievements as he had died the previous year. Prior to this, Hamilton had spent several years portrait painting in London, but his passion was for Rome, where he had studied and would eventually return to live. Hamilton's interest in historical and classical subjects was perhaps why he was selected to create this vast memorial to Dawkins. It shows James Dawkins alongside his companion, Robert Wood. Dawkins was from a wealthy family with plantations in the West Indies. He was Oxford-educated and a man of leisure, which led him to travel widely with his friend John Bouvery, who was an archaeologist and collector. Seven years before Hamilton would paint it, they planned a trip to Palmyra and Baalbek to see for themselves a site etched in their imaginations by the writings of Homer. We propose to read the Iliad and the Odyssey in the countries where Achilles fought, where Ulysses travelled, and where Homer sung. 
It wasn't a jolly holiday by any means. The journey was not the traditional route for 18th century tourists, and the third man in their party, Bouvery, died en route with a fever. Nevertheless, Wood and Dawkins pressed on, and the architectural novelties they brought back would fuel Europe's hunger for classical design. It is no wonder, then, that this was the journey chosen for the memorial painting of Dawkins. But how did the Scottish-born Hamilton, a well-travelled man himself, set about depicting this? Tricia Allerston is in the gallery. So this is a painting of James Dawkins and Robert Wood discovering the ruins of Palmyra. It's an enormous painting that takes up pretty much permanent residence in the Scottish National Gallery. It's focusing on the two key players, James Dawkins and Robert Wood, and it's showing them in a very stylized way, gesturing towards the great archway taking you into Palmyra, which was the set of ruins which they are credited in discovering the set of ruins. We've got uh, three probably Turkish guides who look a bit, one of them particularly looks a bit fierce, like a ter- Turkish janissary. Two of them are on horseback and one of them is on a camel. And there's a third horse, which the, uh, the person's come off, it's being held by a black servant. So of great interest to me is how many of the figures are brought forward and put back in the picture. And one of the key figures to my mind, and you can see it really well on our new website, is the slightly shadowy figure that's come off his horse who's sketching behind wood and next to the servant. And he is Giovanni Battista Borra, who is the architect and draftsman who's employed, like many artists were at the time, to accompany wealthy expeditions to help record. So it would have been Borra, like another famous artist, Luzieri, who helped to um, record the great sites in Athens, um, who helped to measure and draw and think about these wonderful sites that enabled eventually Wood to publish the great designs. It's a really intriguing picture because it's in many ways very obviously a modern picture. If you look at the servant holding the horse, he's dressed in what was probably at the time the most finest livery you could put your servant in. Very, very elaborate sort of 18th century gear. But the two key figures in the centre of the picture are dressed in loosely draped cloths, usually seen as, as togas. And this is something we have quite often in the gallery that paintings painted at this time when there was a huge veneration for the ancient classical world quite often and it happens often with um, sculptures as well uh, modern figures are draped in togas so what we have here is two modern men and they look modern because they've got the most wonderful leather boots on uh, standing draped in togas but the actual bit about Palmyra is actually quite small in the centre it's very uh, signalled with beautiful light but it's very very it's, it's not dominating the picture For though our camels bore the passage of the desert very well, our horses and mules were so languid and exhausted by a march of 26 hours on those sandy plains in a hot sun without a drop of water, that I am convinced they could not have gone much further. You needed people to help you through. You needed guides, but you also needed, in a sense, brawn. You needed people who were strong and, and feared and could protect you because you're travelling through lands inhabited by many, many different uh, groups of people, many of whom did not like travellers coming through their land. Uh, but you're seeing these two men more or less in profile against quite a dark background. And that's interesting in its own right because representing people in profile also reflected a link with antiquity. So it's something that Gavin Hamilton did. He did it a number of times 
and it's, it's done in the Renaissance, for example, when they were discovering ancient um, coins and medals with Ro- Roman emperors on. There is this huge interest in finding these sites that people knew about from texts, but actually to, to locate them. And when you see descriptions of Dawkins and Wood, they're both called archaeologists or Wood subsequently becomes a politician. I think the key thing that separates them out and the other expeditions of the time, they are very much men of science in this period they want not just to discover and to celebrate these sites they want to find out as much concrete evidence information it's something that helps to increase knowledge but it's also something that helps to make their careers and they come back with a lot of information and knowledge about Palmyra that subsequently gets picked up and used by architects across Europe. It's important in art history in lots of ways. Gavin Hamilton is one of our most important Scottish artists, for example, and we're thinking a lot about what it means to be a Scottish artist. He is someone who went to Rome, painted in Rome, is very much associated with um, painting classical subject matters, but also was a dealer. He was very interested in the reality, the material reality of classical antiquity, and in a sense he was fully operating within that world. So he's an incredibly important artist, and that's why this is such an interesting painting, because he's not just being commissioned to, do, to paint something he doesn't know about. He really is aware of the importance of classical antiquity and what these men were doing and what they were trying to do, although he himself had not been to Palmyra. There are many aspects of the picture that I think would be considered problematic today, not least the servant holding the horse, the way they're depicted and dressed up. And this is a trope within the art of the time, and you can look at artists such as Titian and Rubens. It's very much a stylistic thing, and one can analyse it in stylistic grounds, but I think the, the human reality of it makes one feel uncomfortable. The 18th century was an interesting period for Britain's view of the world. The Grand Tour became an aesthetic education for those who could afford the expense of travelling around Europe. But was it just well-heeled travellers that got to view the architecture, art and culture of other nations? And how did this influence what they brought home? We spoke to Professor Jeremy Black at the University of Exeter. I got into the Grand Tour because I felt that too much of the work on it was literary and not enough was about what really happened. The Grand Tour was largely elite travel for pleasure um, in the long 18th century. So it began with the lessening of religious warfare in the mid-17th century after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Um, And essentially, it provided something for young men in particular, a certain number of women travelled, but for young men in particular to do whilst they were bluntly waiting for their fathers to die. But having said that, there was no set pattern. So, for example, in the 18th century, you can find family groups travelling, you can find people travelling later in life with their spouses, you can find women travelling on their own, though when they did that they usually went with with servants, members of the elite travelling for pleasure, but also sometimes adding other purposes. So, for example, acquiring foreign languages. The major destinations in the Grand Tour were Paris and Italy. So that if you were a Swedish tourist or a Russian tourist, these would be your destinations as much as if you were a British tourist. Tourists would expect to see great works of art. 
How art was defined, though, changed quite appreciably. In the first half of the 18th century, the emphasis was more on the culture of the Baroque and paintings. By the late 18th century, you have a much stronger neoclassical cultural impulse. And this leads in several different ways. It obviously means different styles in painting, but it also means much greater interest than hitherto in statuary, Uh, and also greater interest than hitherto in Roman sight. Now, some British tourists notoriously didn't pay much attention, but others did, and they knew it was what you were supposed to do. And the way in which tourists imaged themselves was increasingly as if they were modern classical figures. There's the very famous painting by Pompeo Bertoni of a member of the Gordon family dressed in what must have been a very hot uh, woolen tartan, standing in the Roman Forum, and as if he is the person that is taken over from Rome. Cultural patronage had always been a way in which the social elite had established its difference to the bulk of the population. What's interesting in the 18th century is that elite is getting wider and is broadening out to a certain extent. Secondly, it is more the case that to be a cultured individual, you're expected to have a degree of cosmopolitanism. Travel allows us to broaden our perspectives, achieve distance from the everyday and take inspiration from new parts of the world. Whether through employment, education or necessity, the reasons artists travel are as unique as the work they create as a result. There are times when the work of documenting our world can shape the understanding of not only people far away from the action, but also future generations. The artist John Weber joined Captain Cook on his third and final voyage to the Pacific Rim from 1776 to 1780. It was on this journey that they discovered the Hawaiian archipelago. As the ship's artist, it fell to Weber to record the landscapes, conditions and people that he encountered. This eventually included the death of the famous sea captain on a beach in Hawaii at the hands of its inhabitants. How can photographs transcend distance and time to communicate the experience of being in a particular moment? And how is this an essential part of how we interpret the wider world? We heard from Anne Lydon, the Chief Curator of Photography at National Galleries of Scotland. War photography are photographic images that relate to or depict warfare. And the the history really goes back to the 19th century. Arguably one of the, the first examples of war photographs are the images by Roger Fenton, who went out to the Crimea in the mid-1850s. And his goal was to portray the the military personnel and to sort of create this pantheon of of the, the great British fighters. And he, at the time, wasn't able to actually record live action battle because photography, the technology didn't exist for it to be able to respond in such a fast way. So he was largely based in the the camps, but hadn't accounted for the fact that this was quite an unpopular war back home in Britain, and people really didn't have a concept of where it was, why it was happening. There were actually more men that died as a result of malnutrition and disease in the camps than in the actual live battle. So it was against this context and this background that he was working, he was based there, 
Many of them were suffering from what we would now refer to as post-traumatic stress disorder. And his, his portraits are therefore incredibly moving and insightful into this, this particular time in, in British history. As technology developed and photographers were continuing to, to document various battles, um, you find a lot of photographers are embedded within the British Army and so they follow their journey across the, the empire. So you've got images from not only the Crimea, as we mentioned, with Roger Fenton, but also um, in India and um, across uh, Southeast Asia and to China and Japan. So these images are being relayed back to an audience in Britain. And of course, what photography has is this ability to show the world as it exists. There's a veracity there that you don't necessarily have in other art media or there's not the same trust for veracity. People were looking at these images uh, as an early form of, of, of news items. In the First World War, civilians were not allowed to photograph. There was a real sense of having to maintain a war effort. You have the Leica camera coming into play in 1925 and the Rolleiflex 1930, thereabouts. Um, these are handheld cameras that have fast-moving film that can be rolled on. So it allows for multiple exposures in a fast, um, repetitive way. And um, and because the cameras themselves are, are lightweight and they're not these sort of large-format, heavy wooden boxes, tripod-bound, there is a freedom that the photographer now has to be able to sort of move while shooting at the same time. So you have the iconic images of Robert Kappa of the, the D-Day landings at Omaha Beach, where he is literally in the the marine vessels with the American soldiers and as they are heading out onto the beach he's right there with them and his camera is in his hand and he is photographing um, the thousands of soldiers that are, are sort of making it onto the beach. Propaganda of course is a big part of, of photography at this point too and you've got someone like Lee Miller who is working for British Vogue at a time when a lot of the men have been called up and are in service and women are stepping in and taking on these these jobs, the government realised that women's magazines would be a good form of disseminating that message, of encouraging the women at home to do their bit for the war effort. Um, In Lee Miller's case, it was um, Vogue. In the case of Don McCullen, oftentimes it was the Sunday Times magazine that he was working for. Um, so there is a sense of having to go out there and get the story to, to document what is happening. I think the, the power of those photographs certainly changed minds and um, influenced a lot of people. It's interesting because in the 19th century, many of the photographers who are travelling are basically repeating a tradition that had you know been going on for many years before and that was the idea of the kind of the grand tour you know leaving britain and traveling to continental europe um, or possibly even traveling farther afield but then in the 1880s there's this major breakthrough within the history of photography and that is the introduction of the Kodak Brownie and the, the box camera, the small handheld camera that is easily transportable, that is much more affordable and suddenly puts photography into the hands of the everyday person. Depending on the nature and experience of the painter, we might be presented with a romanticised or disturbing view of other cultures. They may be oversimplified. 
or overly complex, and at a time when the painter was often an eye to the rest of the world, their decisions might have enormous influence. Today, information and alternative viewpoints flow freely in and out of our lives. Do we find ourselves retreating into art to understand and interpret our place? Or do we try to impose order in a world that can be overwhelming? The decisions an artist makes, whether deliberate or instinctive, are always interpreted again in the eyes of the viewer, which makes it quite remarkable that we are still able to converge on some of our reference points. The artist's identity and that of the viewer are all imposed on the place and culture that is their subject. How are those references changing the game for modern artists? We spoke to Sophie Gerrard, a photographer who documents environmental and social themes in her work. She is also a founding member of Document Scotland, a collective which explores the social, cultural and economic life of Scotland through photography. I began my career um, way back in environmental sciences and that gave me a real passion for environmental stories and it's you know, it's wonderful to work as a photographer, being able to focus on those issues and those stories. For me, as a, as a storyteller and as a, as a visual artist and as a photographer, I really think giving the land a voice is one thing, but then really involving the people who are affected by that landscape or who are custodians of that land or who have inhabited that land or who feel a kinship with that place is a real way of making those stories come alive. The history of landscape has generally been a very male-focused one, whether you're looking at the romantic painters or poets and writers of the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. And then all artists, I suppose, have lots of different angles to their work. And sometimes it's about picking, you know, what's the main one? Am I mainly talking about landscape? Am I mainly talking about Scotland? Am I mainly talking about women? I don't know. At the moment, they're all quite interlinked. I guess my first adventure really or, or, or what I was looking forward to do was to leave the UK and to look at environmental stories globally. I lived in India on and off for about three years and I um, I would travel to Mexico with the writer. It was really mixing together environmental stories and, and the effects on local populations. What started to happen was, and rightly I think, that the, there became a real shift towards using, you know, why are we bringing Western photographers into India, for example, why are we not using photographers based in country? But around that time, I started to look at Scotland. The further I was away from Scotland and the more time I spent away, the more, I guess, like romantically um, nostalgic I got, I think. You know, I'd be asked what Scotland was like and you'd start talking about misty hills and heather and all this kind of nonsense when I was, you know, I'm a city girl. And it just really highlighted for me how little I knew about my own country, actually. The more I went to poke around and explore in other foreign, exciting, exotic places, the the more I realised I didn't know very much about my own country. And the independence referendum was coming up and it was a time when politics and, and eyes were, were focusing on Scotland a lot. And there was a lot of reasons for me to move back to this country and to start looking at those stories that were in my own back garden, so to speak. I feel like there is, yeah, there's there's relevance to a visitor going to a place and recording their experiences, yeah, their 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 own experience, their first impressions, what strikes out at them as being different or unusual or new or interesting or exciting. 
And so, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that a, an outside perspective or an inside perspective is more relevant or more valid. I think together you create a universal view. It's like news, right? We have our local newspapers and we have our global news and, and both are as important as each other. I think for me, when I was working in India, I was constantly exposed to situations I didn't really understand. And when I work in Scotland, I'm going to new communities, I'm going to new places, places where I didn't grow up, places where I don't have a past or or any kind of sense of being able to say this is my place in inverted commas. But I'm able to maybe look at the nuance of a situation a little more uh, in depth than I might be in a place where I'm already the other, you know. So my experiences of being Scottish are informing my exploration of, of Scottish stories. I think change is a really nuanced concept to photograph. My work isn't that. It's not a record. It's not a um, scientific kind of study of being in the same place at the same time. I think what starts to explore the notion of change is the combination of all of the different mixed media that I collect. So I collect diaries and uh, photograph diaries belonging to the women and paintings in their homes, their audio as well. I record them. They talk to me about how they feel and what the landscape means to them. Photography can transport us to places without us having to go there. And I mean, that's certainly what I get from looking at other bodies of work. In exploring the historical interpretations of other worlds and cultures, we can find out a lot about how the cultural and political narratives of a time can influence the way they are depicted. Whether it's trying to make sense of something disparate, laying claim to or acquiring other cultures and places, or declaring a spiritual affinity that stretches into the idealistic. The choices an artist makes at one time have the power to shape the imagination and understanding of the subject. Although each artist might interpret the same scene with a distinct treatment from paint to ink to sculpture or photograph, the feeling and context of a particular time and experience of being there then might still endure generations later. I'm Ewan Brunner, and thanks for listening to Reflections from the National Galleries of Scotland. You can find out more about the artists and artworks featured at nationalgalleries.org. If this show's got you thinking, tell a friend about it. Share it on your social media and subscribe to the next. I'll be back next time.